This is the Prophetic Politics Podcast. I'm Nick Rodriguez. I'm Tabidi Anyabwile. And I'm Ben Brophy. And uh, so last week we talked about judges and the courts, and we really talked a lot about sort of the politics and the contemporary issues surrounding them. Um, this week we're going to dive a little deeper and talk about the things that judges do when we talked about interpretation of the law. And really, so this is an episode about the Constitution, the law, and uh, how we interpret it. My tongue-in-cheek title for the episode is In Which We All Pretend to Be Constitutional Scholars. Uh, mostly because, I, I guess I just sort of want to make the point, none of the three of us are constitutional scholars. None of us are even lawyers. Although, embarrassingly, two out of three of us took the LSAT at some point, which is the admission test to get into law school, and never went. Um, but in any case, none of us are lawyers. But actually, we think it's really important that people who aren't lawyers, who aren't scholars, sort of be fluent and able to talk about some of these issues that are always debated when a new Supreme Court decision gets handed down and we're talking about, well, how do you interpret the Constitution? It's actually for all of us to engage in, in some way, shape, or form. And so hopefully this episode gives us a beginning. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and set the table um, with a couple of things, uh, a couple of sort of points about what we mean when we talk about interpreting the Constitution. So let's just start really simple, which is, what is a Constitution? Um, basic definition of it is that it's an aggregate of fundamental principles or established precedents that constitute the legal basis of a polity or an organization or another type of entity. Just to be clear, for example, churches have constitutions that are the fundamental basis for what they do. When we talk about the Constitution, we usually mean the United States Constitution, which is the underlying document for the United States as a polity, as an entity, etc. But constitutions can apply to all kinds of organizations. Anyway, when these principles are written down into a single set of uh, document, they're said to be a written constitution. Not all constitutions are written, um, and not all constitutions codify everything in one place. Um, you know, the United Kingdom famously has what they call an unwritten constitution. That's not quite right. A lot of it's written down but it's not all codified in one place. It's a bunch of case law and precedent and other things like that. Um, and so there are various things, but the, the idea there is that it's a fundamental law that's above other laws. Like uh, in Hong Kong, the constitution is known as its basic law, the law sort of that underlies all the other laws, et cetera. Um, Article six of our own constitution really puts it well. It states that our constitution shall be the supreme law of the land. It shall supersede other things right? Federal laws, state constitutions, state laws, etc. And as we learned last week, judges um, try to interpret both the constitution and the law. When there's a dispute arising as to what the law means, the primary function of the judiciary is to try to read the, the relevant constitution, constitutional text, and or the relevant statute, and to say, all right, are we applying this properly or not? And in some cases, they'll say, a law or an action someone else took was out of step with what the Constitution prescribes, and therefore that action or that other law is invalid. Um, a key quote from that original case we talked about last week, Marbury, Marbury v. Madison, uh, Chief Justice John Marshall wrote for the court, it is emphatically the duty of the judicial department to say what the law is. Uh, in other words, to just, you know, to, to actually interpret. And so that, that's, courts have been doing that for us in the U.S. ever since. So we touched a little bit last week on what are the disputes that arise on this, but we mostly talked about the issues. We talked about cases that get handed down and decided the challenges there. 
the thing I want to talk about today is what people refer to as judicial philosophies, which is what are you supposed to do uh, when you actually read? How, what is your approach to reading the text and then to interpreting it? So a couple that I just want to kind of throw out there as starting points for us, and then we can get into what, what we think of what, what we think of it as Christians. So there's what is called living constitutionalism. Um, I don't know about you guys, but this is actually um, maybe influenced by the liberal academia, as they call it. But this is what I learned about growing up, right? You learn about how we have a living constitution. The idea being that it was drafted, you know, over 200 years ago, but that it is flexible to meet the needs of newer generations. Um, so the, con the meaning in this reading, the Constitution's meanings and principles are flexible. They can be updated to suit current context. Um, in this case, often a judge looking at the constitutional text is going to weigh out what the text says, but they're also going to weigh out what is the outcome of my approach, right? If I, what is the outcome of my decision? Uh, does it mean that schools are desegregated or resegregated? Does it mean that people have or don't have certain rights, etc.? And they'll worry about that too. So the most famous probably um, exposition of this was made by um, a famous justice of the Supreme Court, Thurgood Marshall, uh, first African-American justice on the court, also um, famously the guy who argued Brown v. Board of Education, one of the guys who argued Brown v. Board of Education. And he said, well, you do what you think is right and you let the law catch up. Now, as I'm going to explain in a moment, that is uh, not, that, that is diametrically opposed to what other judicial philosophies would have to say. But, but there is that respect for what do you think is right? Right? What are the consequences of my decision? Take those into account alongside the text. Um, and so there's, there's something there uh, that's important. Second sort of branch of philosophy um, is what is sometimes referred to as originalism. And that basically just tries to ask the question, you have to, it basically tries to have a, to elevate a respect for the original intent of the people who wrote the document, um, particularly the constitution. So it's trying to say, what did the founders really mean when they wrote those words? What do the words mean in that context? So you'll hear people talk about, there's a phrase they throw around, original public meaning. In other words, what did those words mean in that context at that time? Um, Supreme Court Justice uh, recently deceased Antonin Scalia is sort of known as the standard bearer for this, but there are lots of originalists out there as well. Um, a third and related branch would be textualism, which is to say, what do the words themselves mean, regardless of the intent behind them? Um, so um, in this reading, this is, again, more like the originalist, but it's different, right? I might say, whatever the text says is whatever the text says, even if those who drafted it might have meant something else. I need to go to what does the text like just actually mean and say, I can do no other thing. Um, and um, so in, in that sense, there's a, there, there's a and, and there are many people who sort of subscribe to both schools. In fact, some would say, Originalism matters a great deal for the Constitution because it was drafted at a particular moment of our founding, whereas textualism matters for laws and the statutes that are subservient to that Constitution. That's another way to read it. Um, but in any case, as you can see, these are differing philosophies. Um, they give rise to different ways of interpreting the law. And there are concerns you're trying to elevate here around justice, around what's right, but also around what's consistent. Right, like if you're a textualist, you're going to fall back on at least I'm, you know, at least I'm being consistent, and I feel like do what's right and let the law catch up feels inconsistent, and so that's a problem. And yet at the same time, textualists and originalists will often find themselves caught in the trap of, hmm, like I'm not, um, uh, like the, the the decision being made doesn't seem to make sense <laughs> in terms of its outcome, 
but too bad because that's what the text says. That's what the originalist in, uh, interpretation says. So those are the those are the general contours of the philosophies. Progressives tend to be sort of pegged as being more associated with living constitutionalism. Conservatives a bit more with originalism and textualism, but it's sometimes more complicated than that. Um, and as we're going to get into, so that's the basic uh, kind of playing field, as it were. Um, yeah, me. You can I ask you a question. In, yeah. In, um, so if you're sort of surveying the landscape of, let's, let's take a, a sort of limited set, the sort of Supreme Court justices currently, mm. how, would, how would they fall out in these categories? And then if you were zooming back to just think about um, the field broadly, writ largely, lawyers, judges, so on and so forth, where would they kind of fall out in these categories? I mean, just- Then you should answer it first. <laughs> maybe I, I, I have no idea. Uh, yeah, I think the only thing I know, the only one I know, I think, is Gorsuch is is considered to be a textualist, not an originalist. I I think, but as a bunch of conservatives learned to their chagrin uh, a couple weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, um, that's the one I know. I mean, I yeah, I don't know. I I would be spec. It would be speculation for me to say anything else about any of the other eight. Um, I, I'll say this. The reason I'd say it's complicated is because I've, I've given you some caricatures there, but most judges and justices want to know as part of their analysis what the text says. Most of them want to know what they think the original drafters intended, even if that's not dispositive, right? And, and of course, most of them, not all, but many of them would want to say, well, and what does it mean today? Like, how do we, what are the consequences of my decision today? So most judges would tell you they try to do, to bring in elements of all three. I think when we talk about politics, we tend to see one of them come out more than So the Neil Gorsuch textualism is a good example. Every now and then he's even out of step with like all of his colleagues because he's so firmly committed to textualism. Antonin Scalia, as I said before, was like kind of considered the fundamental originalist. I think that, um, one, one story of the last 40 years is that you could make the argument that there was a sort of left-leaning progressive consensus in legal academia and therefore in our courts that was sort of living constitutionalist, but also obviously a, a respect for the text and for the origins as well, but maybe not as much as some people would have liked. And that the conservative legal movement of the last 40 years largely arose out of a dissatisfaction with that consensus and saying, we're actually getting too far away from the original intent and we're getting too far away from the text and we need a movement of scholars and eventually of judges who are going to bring us back to that. They, they, some folks in this movement even refer to what they call the constitution in exile, by which they mean, we think it's been badly interpreted for a few generations now, we gotta get it back to where it was before. Mm -hmm. And you, you, basically your conservative appointed justices tend to come from that movement especially the more recent ones. So that would be Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Alito, um, Roberts, and oh my gosh, um, Thomas. and Thomas, Clarence Thomas, right? And so you're going backwards in order of, and then your four sort of uh, Democrat appointed justices um, are not gonna tend to be, or don't come from that movement, um, right? So you've got Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you've got Stephen Breyer, uh, you've got Sonia Sotomayor, and you've got Elena Kagan, right? Those are all, um, that you, but they would argue, well, we just come from that mainstream that people have no longer accepted as mainstream anymore, right? So that's that's actually part of the debate. 
I think the way, Nick, tell me if you think this is fair. The way I've kind of interpreted these, these two rough positions that we sketched out is one has a more maximal view of the Supreme Court's power and the other one, at least in, in its doctrine, has a more limited view of what the court can and, and cannot do. So it's interesting. I would have said that a decade ago. I would have said it in the 90s. So back in the day, right, like when we were growing up, <laughs> what you had was a legacy of relatively progressive court decisions from Brown v. Board up through like kind of say, call it like the present day of like the 90s. And what you hear, Ben, is a lot of like complaints on the right of saying, we don't want unelected judges making these decisions. So there's this reference to judicial activism versus judicial restraint. And activism is sometimes associated with living constitutionalism, right? It said, gosh, these guys are overreaching. They did all this stuff. Like, what, what, you know, that, that doesn't make any sense. It's nowhere in the text. Um, we, we just want to interpret the law. We just want judges who are going to interpret the law. So John Roberts, the current chief justice, when he was being confirmed, um, famously said, I think a judge is like an, an umpire. It's just my job to call balls and strikes, right? That's all it is. And that, that sort of is associated with originalism or textualism. But one thing I think we've learned since, the since conservatives have come to the dominate the court over the course of the last like 10, 15 years is that activism can be practiced by the right or the left, right? So um, the justices can take their preferences, be they conservative or liberal, be they sort of strict, be they textualist or uh, sort of living constitutionalist and can apply them to make decisions that actually do have quite a bit of power, right? Um, and which do actually uh, sort of say certain, certain things are constitutional or unconstitutional. And I think with a few decades now of conservative dominance of the court, you've seen that anyone can be an activist, right? Anyone can actually be pretty powerful or, or put Supreme Court power to pretty strong use. So that, that would be, no, no, I, I think conservative friends would probably say that's not true. We're just restoring things to their original state is what they would say. But there are some decisions, right? The, the, we keep coming back to this one about the Voting Rights Act that happened about eight years ago, where you kind of go, that was them making law. That was them deciding, like, this is kind of how we think about the, uh, you know, about, about voting rights. And it's a conservative position when all is said and done. Um, and so they're sort of entitled to it. But like, that was a very activist decision. They overturned a law that had been reauthorized. It overturned a part of a law that had been reauthorized by like a 95% vote of Congress, like five years prior, right? If that's not activism, I don't know what is. Well, I think like, regardless of this, I guess what I'm saying is regardless of the specifics, the philosophy would say, like if you mm. would say, okay, if you're originalist textualist, you, we want to restrict to some degree the power of the court, living constitution might have a more maximalist view. How that philosophy is applied vis-a-vis -vis the conservative, more conservative court, I wouldn't say conservative necessarily, depending on the issue, over the past 10 years, uh, <laughs> like whether they applied that appropriately or not, like I'm not, I am not equipped to render a judgment on. Uh, I, I mean, I think it should surprise us 0% that a political power structure is somewhat hypocritical. <laughs> like that's <laughs> right. Not at all. Um, but yeah. yeah. So anyway, I'm just it's a good point though, ben, right? Like is that if you're a progressive, you will, you know, you may, you may be more inclined to say, let me kind of read the law in ways that update it. Right. And maybe expand judicial power. Um, than if, than if you're a conservative, right. I guess, um, but I just think that, 
this is the this is the whole thing. It depends on the law. And so when I <laughs> last week did my riff on like these are all words and people will argue any which way depending on you know they can marshal uh, yes they can marshal an argument based on precedent and their philosophy to support almost any position. Like I think I think that's true to some degree. I, I think we I think we've seen that. I mean uh, you know yeah. to take like a right a right to privacy was that fourth amendment and then out of that wholesale create a, a right to abortion not to beat that dead horse a million times but it's like that's not in the that's like that's not there but there's a plausible legal argument that's been made by progressive justices for years and, and they've kind of created it somewhat out of nothing and in the same way i guess like i don't know the the voting rights act legislation as well as you do um, but I think that's an example on the right of like, yeah, they've they've kind of created something whole cloth out of nothing. And so that's why, I don't know, I, I, I hear a lot of the legalese and I just kind of go, you guys are making it all up. <laughs> I, I, so actually, I want to come back to that, Ben, because okay. that's actually my fundamental argument for where I land on this spectrum, right? Which is not that we're making it all up, but that we need to recognize the role that um, courts play in making law, whether we like that or not, right? Like that actually is a thing that happens <laughs> and it's a question of how do we want it to happen and what are the restraints or constraints that we want to put on that. Um, but I think it's a fiction to suggest that judges and justices, you know, just call balls and strikes. They have to make these sorts of calls all the time, actually. Um, they have to, you know, as, as one, I think I said last week, decide the undecidable. They have to create standards and principles and doctrines, none of which are in the text of the Constitution or the law that help resolve these sorts of issues when they arise. And so the question is, admit, if you admit that that's happening, how then do you want it to happen, as it were? Yeah, and to, to throw John Roberts a bone, which I'm not inclined to do, I think he wishes the court could just call balls and strikes. But again, like, there is not law uh, on all of the issues that come up in front of the Supreme Court. And again, as we talked about last week, that's because our legislature doesn't do a lot of passing of policy these days. So, so I'm sure he wishes that every eventuality had like a, a policy pass that he could then interpret. But it just happens again and again that there's these edge cases that there's not. Exactly. So let's come back to that. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to ask the BD to tell us a little bit about what the Bible says about um, law and legal interpretation. And we're back. So we've talked about what we think about the law. What does the Bible um, have to say about law, laws, and our relationship to the law? Well, this is an important matter for Bible-believing Christians. I mean, an entire genre of our Bible is law. Um, mm -hmm. And in one sense, when you think about uh, the Torah, the, the first five books of the Bible, um, one could argue that's Israel's constitution. Uh, uh, that's Israel's constitution and its its laws and and so on. And in, in a certain way, um, the entire canon of Scripture functions to us a little bit like a constitution, a little bit like law. Um, but when it comes to what the Bible actually says, I, I think I want to suggest that 
uh, again, you're not going to turn to book, chapter, verse, and, and get a treatise on constitutions, right? But the right. Bible does, the New Testament in particular, clearly teach us a, a certain posture um, before the law and before government um, that Christians are meant to hold. So, for example, 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And just a little bit later in verse 17, honor the emperor. Paul says to a young pastor Timothy, instructing Timothy on what to teach the church, how to disciple the church, says in first, excuse me, Titus, says to Titus, in Titus 3.1, remind them, the Christian church, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. So, so what the Bible is creating is a certain kind of posture toward the law, uh, a submissiveness to those who are in authority, a submissiveness to the law, uh, a readiness to obey the law and obey those in authority. Of course, in the ancient world, the emperor was the law, right? He's, he's mm. the Rex, right? Yes. Uh, that would have been the working constitutional understanding, if you will, of most monarchies and empires. So in order to, to witness to the goodness and righteousness of God, um, Christians are called to be subject, subject to authorities. But even inside the church itself, you have apostolic rulings that the church is meant to abide. There's a sense in which the church itself is a, is a local court. The teachings of scripture provide so much case law and so much in the way of authoritative teaching that the leaders and members of the local churches are, are meant to apply. Think, for example, Acts chapter 15 in the Jerusalem Council. Uh, there's a dispute about what to do with the Gentiles. Uh, and there's a ruling passed down from that meeting in Acts 15 and read to all the churches for implementation and, and um, obedience. Or think of 1 Corinthians 6 and Paul's admonishment that there ought to be mature believers who would judge between other Christians in the matter of disputes instead of going to secular courts. So all of this creates a, a posture of submission toward ruling documents. Um, toward, toward decisions, particularly God's word, but also apostolic authority. And it turns churches into sort of courts, uh, in a sense. If you, again, if you're thinking there, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So, so the posture that, that Christians are meant to be uh, in is one of honoring, submitting to, obeying, obeying the law, uh, and taking the law from the king, or taking the rulings from the apostles, um, to be obeyed in, in both spirit and letter, right? Now, this, this creates some temptations for us as Christians, right? So we have that kind of posture, and we're Bible-believing Christians. I do think there's some temptations in the sort of current conversation around the Constitution and how we read the Constitution. Uh, so when we come to our Bibles, we generally do so with a few rules of interpretation in mind. Um, one of those uh, is called authorial intent. Um, this means that to understand the Bible properly, we have to begin with what the author of that part of the Bible, that portion of scripture, intended when they wrote. So, for example, there are some Christians who read a book like Revelation. They see all kinds of references to modern-day phenomena, the strange beasts with the tails and the heads like lions and wings that fly um, to, to these folks become kind of symbolic of Black Hawk military helicopters, right? You know, mm -hmm. um, well, authority intent says that cannot be correct because John, the author of Revelation, had 
not the faintest conception of a Black Hawk helicopter, right? Uh, it was not his purpose to describe such things. So authorial intent would seem to tip us toward what you've been calling, Nick, at least a textualist reading, if not an originalist kind of reading yeah, yeah. of the Constitution. Now, that's not a, that's not a bad leaning because the document cannot, in fact, mean something that the writers did not intend or could not have intended. Uh, we, just, we just don't read documents that way. Um, so we should grapple with that, that sort of um, first meaning in, in the original context to understand it as best we can, right? So we, we're sort of leaning that way, but there are two important caveats. Uh, we know that the committee of authors who actually wrote the Constitution had mm. rival opinions and ideals that are reflected in compromises in the Constitution. So, yeah. so while the Constitution should not be read today as if the founders foresaw Black Hawk helicopters, it also should not be read as if there's a single author with one meaning. Um, there, there's just debate um, all swirling all around uh, the, the sort of Constitution itself. And so to read it as if there were none, I think is a mistake. Secondly, th there's the issue that, another issue that Bible-believing Christians have to keep in mind is kind of a caveat. We believe the Bible to be divinely inspired, breathed out by God, uh, and its autographs to be without error. That's a claim we make for the Bible because we understand the Bible's authors to have been carried along by the Holy Spirit so that they recorded what God wanted recorded. This is something that cannot be ascribed to the Constitution. The Constitution is a fallible document. And the clear evidence of, of its fallibility, of course, um, are the many amendments to the Constitution and, and the inclusion of a Bill of Rights that, that seek to shore up omissions in the document. So you could say that the canon of the Constitution is not fixed, like the Bible, and that the Constitution itself is fallible, and that fallibility requires a different approach to interpretation, I think, than a sort of strict originalist uh, reading, um, or even a, a, a textualist reading alone. It, it requires us to ask some questions, beginning with, you know, what, what did the founders mean, right? But then moving on to what, what did the founders get wrong, or leave out, or not understand? Right? Or we have to ask a question like, which should prevail today, the founders' original intent or the understanding that, say, societies arrived at today? Now, I understand that for some people, asking questions like that is what gets us into trouble, right? We don't approach our Bibles that way, and we shouldn't. Um, but that's precisely the point. The Constitution is not the Bible. The Bible is not the Constitution. We have to have slightly different reading postures or significantly dis different reading postures when we come to them. You know, when we're looking at the Constitution, uh, there's no way to, to ask those questions, to not ask those questions, excuse me, since in truth, those, those are the questions that are animating the founders themselves. You know, how should we be like England? How should we be different than England? Have we arrived at a different understanding of liberty, for example, uh, and its relation to, to monarchy? Uh, they're, they're, even as they're framing the Constitution, they're doing that kind of I would argue political and cultural exegetical work um, to sort of figure out what to put down in print. Um, and, and I think to read it responsibly today, we have to do similar kind of work. So all of this to say, if a, if a Christian approaches the Constitution the way they approach their Bibles, and they're going to make some serious mistakes 
with the Constitution. Uh, the two documents are not at all alike uh, and have to be read according to their own natures in that sense. Yep. Even, as we're a, being, even as we're being submissive to uh, the laws uh, as the Bible kind of postures us. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. That's great. Thank you, Anthony, for grounding us in that. And I think the, the comparison and contrast with how we read our Bibles will be important for us as Christians, because I think there are, as you say, useful things there, and then there are where, places where it, it's not a good analogy to make. Mm -hmm. um, ben, I wonder what you think of that. My, my general question here is, what do we think of these different philosophies? <laughs> um, and which ones do we favor? And maybe for different reasons, maybe we favor a little bit of each of them um, in terms of how you approach uh, the reading a constitution. Yeah, um, I mean, I think, I, I think if you're being an originalist or, or strict, I think in theory, I'd, I'd want my judges to be um, a textualist, assuming that there's policy rulings aplenty for them to then figure out what Congress means when it says, you know, we're going to pass this tax or not. Um, and whether that policy comes into conflict with the constitution, right? Like those, I, I would get, I would be on board with that, but given the fact that there's just so many questions and so many cultural cleavages that are happening that Congress hasn't provided any sort of policy guidance for, um, I think, I think it puts the court in a tough spot. Uh, and I think what I would, the way I, I don't know, I think the way I'd probably approach it is, okay, let me try to figure out what the law that pertains to this particular issue meant in its original context. Um, and then, you know, if, if it doesn't apply or yeah, I think you have to do the best you can, which is going to mean sometimes making decisions that either create powers that didn't exist or pull powers that maybe had existed previously. Um, so I'm probably a smattering of all three, which is, which is essentially me saying they should do the right thing. They should judge, <laughs> they should judge with right judgment. That's Thurgood Marshall, Ben. <laughs> That's, do what you think is right and let the law catch up. Right. But I think, you know, yeah, I, and I don't necessarily the, the what makes me, but the the reason I'll caveat it and the why I like, I have some sympathy for the textualist approach is is ultimately I am uncomfortable with more government power as a whole, like philosophically at a very broad level. I don't trust. Um, no, nah, I don't want to say that. I trust the government with plenty of things, right? But in general, at a macro level. I tend to want to emphasize the freedom of the individual over the power of the government. Now that's a very broad category. Um, you know, so you have to get into specifics with obviously like that, that belief doesn't carry through on every particular circumstance. So when you have somebody who's more of a living constitutionalist who will kind of interpret the constitution in such a way that we're going to create whole sets of rights and policies and things of that sort that didn't exist previously, that tends to make me a little uncomfortable. Um, yeah, so that, that's why I have some sympathy for the textualist approach, but frankly, it's an impossible position to hold because there just isn't enough, there isn't enough law or policy 
to govern the the types of conflicts, particularly between rights, you know, the right, you know, religious liberty versus um, identity issues, whatever. Like, there just isn't enough law governing those circumstances for them to just call strikes. And to be, to be to be clear, Ben, I would say you a few times here you've laid that at the feet of Congress and the elected branches right. of government. I think sometimes that's true. Yeah. I also think part of that is the way law the way law works sometimes. And I'll just give you an example here, right? Most law is written such that like the details do have to be filled in with experience. Um, you know, so for example, like our constitution is a short one, right? Like it's relatively like, short among the constitutions of the world. There are, there are very long ones, and, but those attempt to try to account for every single case and it usually doesn't work. So you get a big broad phrase like equal protection of the law, right? In the 14th amendment, which is sort of one of the big civil rights amendments. Well, what does that mean, right? And so let me give you an example of like what that looks like in the court, right? So anyone who studies, you know, the, um, anyone who studies uh, constitutional law will be familiar with the phrase strict scrutiny. Maybe you guys have heard it too. The idea would be that when a racial categorization is made in a law, a court looking at that law and determining its validity should apply what is called strict scrutiny to it. And that means that the law should be held invalid unless it you know, number one, fulfills a compelling government interest, and number two, sort of, um, you know, uh, and, and does so in a way that, like, uh, minimizes the harm done. There are a number of other things I'm not getting the full test right, but here's my point. The words strict scrutiny are in no law, are in no constitutional text, are in no statute. They were literally made up by courts as a way of applying and interpreting um, sort of equal protection laws in this country. Right. Yeah. Like there's and there and I can I can go on and on and on with you about like the way that like there are so many different litmus tests and things that the courts impose that allow us to fill in the details of laws because they're meant it's meant to be like, what's the practical outworking of how you use the law and, you know, strict scrutiny as a way of doing it. It ain't bad. Right. To say, OK, well, when a law is passed that says something about, you know, <laughs> racial categories, we need to look at it extra hard. That seems to be a good and faithful way to interpret a civil rights amendment to the constitution and civil rights law generally, but that's a judgment call that judges have to make. One set of Supreme Court justices, you know, sort of put that out there and everyone's kind of followed it as precedent ever since, but that's, that's generally how courts work. And so I, that's, that's why I think it's a fiction to say it's just as simple as do what the law says, because you almost always have to sort of fill in things like that. I'll give you another example. Um, so we talked last week about Brown v. Board and how it partially overturned a prior case from 60 years earlier called Plessy v. Ferguson. Plessy v. Ferguson had essentially said separate segregated facilities are okay as long as they're equal. And 60 years later, Brown v. Board, one of the famous quotes is, separate facilities are inherently unequal. Therefore, we can't have segregation in this case in our schools anymore. That's actually a really good example of lived experience sort of helping to inform the decisions that courts make, which is to say someone postulated in the 1890s, like, yeah, it'll be equal. It'll just be separate. And maybe because, you know, that has, you know, like that's an argument that holds sway with a court in a different time, et cetera. But you say, okay, we now have 60 years of experience to show <laughs> that separate facilities are unequal. I can't ignore that evidence. So my ruling is going to be different this time. The idea that sort of case law allows you to learn over time is I think another feature of our court system that is 
unremarked, but that's all stuff that's written down in the rulings of courts. It's not written down in statute. It's not written down in the constitution. So I guess my, my point here is that judges have to fill in these blanks, like no matter what. And so it's a question of how they fill them in. Yeah, I, I, part of me thinks that maybe you guys are talking past each other a little bit, right? Or, or maybe I'm hearing, <laughs> hearing you know, poorly. Um, because here's where I think from a Christian perspective, that, that our politics have to be prophetic, right? Mm. Um, because I think if you try and hold woodenly to any one of those sort of approaches to the Constitution, that, that approach is probably going to be helpful in some places mm. and probably going to be harmful in others. So, for example, um, I think I want to be sort of an originalist as it relates to the powers um, assigned to the branches of government. That's, that's kind of what I hear been talking about when he talks about Congress needs to make law uh, and the court shouldn't. Um, well, I, for me, that, that, that seems to me to be really consistent with um, either originalist reading or um, even a textual reading. And it, and it keeps us out of sort of the, the creeping of the branches into the sort of realm of other branches. And, you know, this, this is an old argument, right? I'm reading a book right now on uh, John Marshall and, and Thomas Jefferson and some of their arguments about what kind of nation we're going to be. This is, you know, high Federalist versus Republicans kind of stuff in the, in the 1700s, 1800s. Um, so there's some places where a, an approach to the Constitution makes a whole lot of sense, right? But then there are other places where if, if, you, if you held tightly to that approach to the, to the Constitution, you're actually going to make some really um, terrible mistakes. So if if you're going to hold to an originalist reading or a textual reading, you're probably not going to get Brown. You, you're probably not going to get a lot of things that that nowadays you look at it and go, well, that's that's self-evidently true. That's that's just right. That was the right thing to do. So I think that's where we've got to learn to be prophetic in terms of our our reading. We've got to learn to sort of in one sense, humbly receive the Constitution, that posture of submission. In another sense, as Christians to say, we actually have another Constitution that has more authority than this one, namely the Bible, right? And we're going to read this human Constitution in light of that divine Constitution and be kind of prophetic in our approach to this fallible document, right? Um, so not only is the document fallible, but I think any of the three approaches are going to be fallible depending on what you're looking at. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's let's pick that up after uh, one more break and talk a little bit about sort of what's the Christian to do. Uh, I think in, in in interpreting and thinking about these approaches to the law and to the Constitution. And we're back. So. Ben, you said something during the break that I'd like you to repeat <laughs> about the nature of um, sort of this debate between judicial philosophies. Well, now I don't remember what I said. I just have, this happens to me all the time. I say something it's and people are like, that was really and I'm like, I don't know what I said. <laughs> it's about consistency and theories of everything. Oh, yeah. So I think, yeah, part of the problem is, is people on the, on the left or the right or all over are looking for some kind of theory that explains everything that govern that's like a superstructure over the whole thing um, that can then kind of, you know, you decide case law underneath that superstructure. Unfortunately, that just doesn't exist and it's impossible to do. 
given the intricacies of of law right so there is no way to have a super theory that explains everything as it as it purports to the american legal system and so you you fundamentally have to deal with the facts of the case as they come is that is that close yeah yeah yeah, no, but, but I think that's actually, because I think the conservative objection to much of what we've been saying, right, will be, I want something consistent that kind of holds true in any case, right? Um, and the liberal objection too, right, separately will be, I always want the kind of particular outcome I'm looking for to be delivered, right, in a, in a, in a, in a particular way. Um, and what I'm hearing from you is, and what I think I'm hearing from all three of us is a hunger for this nuance of actually looking at all these different philosophies and seeing that they each have value to bring to the table um, in the way that we look at um, the law, which is, I think, a dissatisfying answer to most people who are committed, <laughs> you know, originalists or textualists or, 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 or living constitutionalists, but probably potentially the right way forward. But it's the answer that keeps us out of fundamentalisms. Mm. Right? I mean, so it's going to be the nature of fundamentalists, whether the right or the left, to only want to have one answer always applied in every situation. Uh, to have that one hammer and turn everything else into a nail, um, but that that's actually not that's actually not the way the world works. That's not the way peace works. That's not the way learning works. Um, unless we have some nuance and the ability to nuance, um, we're going to be hopelessly lost in um, sort of brute force law and fundamentalism. That's not going to be. Um, it's not going to tend toward flourishing at all, right? So. So we don't want to be, I, I would suggest that we don't want to be lazy in this way. We want to embrace the, the complexity, um, engage it and learn from it, um, and, and trust God, be people of faith, trust God that he has good things for us, even in the complexity. Yeah, yeah so that makes me think like the, the, un, the untethered progressive is going to want the Supreme Court to always essentially advance a progressive agenda by, by fiat from the bench, right? And then the the untethered sure. conservative is going to say, turn the country back into 1786 again. Right. right? And, and no. neither, one of, neither one of those are desirable. Right. Um, and yeah. so I think, yeah, and I think too, you know, yeah, we're not going to get back to a context of the 1800s. You know, we, we live in a different time in a different place. And at the same time, like, we don't have a Supreme Court that can make words mean whatever they wanted to mean despite you know postmodernist best efforts towards that so i think there is yeah it's almost an oversimplification to say living document or originalist like that those things don't seem possible so i i, I want to make one last point here and test it with you guys because i think it's getting to this which is that if you're a con if you study constitutions i think it'll be safe to say constitutions are fundamentally about legitimacy with the people that they govern. Um, and if you lose that legitimacy, you sort of get too far away, then that itself becomes a threat to the constitution itself, regardless of how you interpret it. So I'll give you some examples from history that I think are interesting. So I'll just start with the birth of the constitution itself, right? So we had a constitution before this constitution. It was called the Articles of Confederation. Mm -hmm. We all study in history classes why they didn't work terribly well. To be amended, the articles required a unanimous vote of all the sort of 13 states. And all these people show up to the Constitutional Convention. They didn't know at the time that that's what it was, but they say, well, we're going to go ahead and amend. At first, they said, well, the convention is for the purpose of proposing amendments to the articles. 
And what they emerged with was a completely different document with a completely different ratification process separate from the articles. I mean, you could argue that was itself a, our constitution was birthed in a coup against the Articles of Confederation, one that completely disregarded the fact that they existed. Now, hundreds of years later, we're fine with it. Why? Because eventually all 13 states ratified the new constitution. They all said it was okay. And we've since kind of evolved and updated it. But the point is that a constitution's source of legitimacy isn't how beautifully it's written, it's whether people and the polity like accept it. And that's what had to happen in that moment. Um, and ever since then, we've sort of seen these examples. So not long after Marbury v. Madison, when Andrew Jackson was president, there was um, you know, the famous Indian Removal Act, what was known as sort of the Trail of Tears moment, you know, sort of a genocide and a forced relocation of Indian tribes. Supreme Court rules against it, says it's unconstitutional. And this may be an apocryphal quote, but Andrew Jackson, who personally led the army that drove the native peoples out of, you know, the, what was then Georgia, um, said, you know, Mr. Justice Marshall has made his decision, now let him enforce it. And what he meant by that was that, you know, I don't agree with this decision, so I'm simply not going to carry it off. The justices are just these people in robes and they don't have an army. I do. <laughs> so because the decision was probably forward, obviously we, we agree with that decision, forced removal, bad idea, but it didn't have the popular support Andrew Jackson did, and so he did what he wanted, right? Um, and ever since then, what you see is this balance of how is the court perceived? So Earl Warren, who was the guy who led the court that decided in Brown v. Board, he knew it was going to be a really important ruling and sought to make sure it was a unanimous ruling for that reason. Technically, that doesn't matter. But he said, for the court to be legitimate in making such a big decision, I want a unanimous ruling. Now, you could argue in the other direction. We all talked about Roe v. Wade as being this, this overreach that sort of created this right to abortion. And you could argue that has fundamentally challenged the legitimacy of the court and our constitution for the last 40 years, because there's a whole swath of the country that thinks that was an illegitimate decision. And then come update that to today, which is to say that like, you know, a today conservative dominated Supreme Court risks its own backlash, right? If it's going to sort of continue to, if, if it keeps ruling say on voting rights in a way that disenfranchises certain groups, eventually those certain groups are going to stop seeing the court or our system as legitimate. And that itself is a threat to our republic. So there's something there about how constitutions as a whole are only as good as the popular support that they have. And I think what we're talking about, this sort of back and forth of interpret it this way, apply these principles, figure out what like will pass muster, is part of our struggle to keep our constitution kind of legitimate and with a kind of critical mass of popular support. But that, that's what I've been thinking a lot about lately. And I wonder what you guys think of that. Well, no, I think you, I think you raise a good issue, uh, the issue of legitimacy. And I think in some sense, we're living in an era where all of our institutions are, are being eroded in terms of their legitimacy. Um, and, and that's concerning. I mean, if you, if you, care, if you care about the country, um, you really do have to care about its institutions and you have to care about the legitimacy of its institutions um, in the eyes of the public because it's the only way that the institutions can actually function. Um, without being viewed as authoritarian or tyrannical or worthy of overthrow. Um, and so I, I think you, you raise a really critical point there, um, Nick, and, and I'm thankful for that. Uh, one question that raises for me is sort of where is the, where is the seat of legitimacy? Um, you know, in some of these discussions, it's the states. 
in other discussions, it's the it's the populace, um, and sort of again, this is an old debate, right? Uh, is it states' rights or the rights of individuals? You know, um, again, a tension right there at the founding um, that that sort of doesn't get shored up in a final way, but you know, there there are individuals who who may view institutions as illegitimate, uh, while other state actors see them as as quite legitimate. Uh, or vice versa, um, and and so we still have to kind of figure out, you know, where where does the buck stop in these things? Um, it's not the federal government; it's the states, it's the individuals. Um, that that tension is, I think, I think it just sort of floats beneath the surface on in many of these discussions. Yeah. What do you think, Ben? Um, yeah, it's funny. I think. Yeah, legitimacy. So I did my master's in comparative politics. And one of the things I studied this is a long time ago, but one of the things I studied was constitutional design for emerging democracies. So, you know, back then, the Iraqi constitution was like a big thing. And so the idea that kind of carried the day was consociationalism, which is the idea of proportional representation. And there, thereby, if you have a nation that's formed of, um, three different identity groups so in you know in iraq it's kurds shia shiites right uh and so if everybody has a voice at the table um the hope is that they will fight it out in the legislature instead of in the streets um however that like legitimacy never came to fruition well at least for a certain segment of the population it just never came to fruition they still saw the you know various fighting factions still saw military arms as a valid avenue to contend for their interests or their rights or however you want to phrase it. And so that led to quite a bit of instability. Um, and so I think that's like proof positive of what you're saying. If they don't buy it, if, if a people doesn't buy, you know, the rules that have set down, no matter how clever we are. And that, that was the thing we thought we were so clever in deciding that constitution and the Iraqis were just kind of like, no, um, <laughs> But I think what it shows you is that it takes time for legitimacy to be built, right? And so we are in the enviable position of having hundreds of years of like kind of um, creating norms around these institutions. But what I, what I find so disheartening is it doesn't seem to take that long to chip away um, at, that, at that same sense of legitimacy, right? Like, you know, think about something like we're, we're not talking about the presidency but think about something like executive orders it started with with w and continued through your bomb administration and are being used for all sorts of things now and uh, yeah i mean that is something that i think depending on what party you're in or who you support you look at executive orders and you're like this is bogus right like and as soon as the opposing party gets in they're going to undo all of that um and that's not a great it A, erodes legitimacy and faith in governance, but B, it's not a good way to govern. You know, the federal government is a giant mechanism. You can't, it can't steer left and right at a moment's notice. Um, so yeah, I agree. I agree with your point. It takes a long time to build legitimacy. It does not seem to take too long to erode that legitimacy. So we have to be, we have to be careful. Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, for, yeah, yeah. There's all sorts of examples I can think of.
Um, yeah, I, I think that's right, Ben. And, and, and part of what I draw from what you're saying there is, I think many Christians think that the threat to the legitimacy of, of our government institutions is either who's in the White House or what particular laws are on the book or not. Yeah. Um, when actually the threat is the erosion of the institutions themselves uh, and the integrity of the institutions themselves. Um, and and it's, it's hard to put that genie back in the bottle. Now, the one thing I, I think I would pull on a little bit, Ben, in what you're saying, I, I um, watched a, a, a PBS uh, segment the other day that had three uh, presidential historians talking about um, various things from monuments and other things and so on and so forth. But the, one of the things that struck me uh, was one of the historians basically said, they're talking about the development over the country over the centuries. He basically says, we've we really only been a nation for about 60 years. And what he meant was, is when you start to look at the enfranchisement of different people, African-American, women, so on and so forth, uh, and the work that has to be done on the Constitution and laws in order to enfranchise people and so on, it basically saying, hey, we're actually a very young republic. And um, in terms of being a country where everyone is included, we're actually about 60 years old, 65 years old. Um, and so part of what's happening, I think, in this cultural moment is all of that youthfulness as a country um, is coming to the surface at precisely the same time that institutions are either being reformulated or eroded. Uh, and it's, it's a volatile moment. It's a really volatile moment uh, in that regard. Yeah, yeah, I think I had the, the Supreme Court in mind, right? Like Marbury Madison happened pretty early. Yeah. Uh, but you're right, like in terms of women voting in the early 20th and then full enfranchisement for, for minorities, like that, that was not that long ago. Um, and yeah, I mean, this is, this is off topic. Well, maybe I won't bring that up, but, but yeah, if you, if you see like, it makes sense why people who have been disenfranchised would, would be a little jaded with, with the institution itself. Um, whatever institution that may be. I, I guess what I'm thinking of is like, I'm thinking of police right now, like as we all see dozens and dozens and dozens of videos on the internet of police doing horrible things, like let alone the killing of African-Americans. But now it's like, they're you know, there's just video after video of them beating on protesters for no reason. And that really, yeah, it, it has completely eroded the authority of the police. Um, and, and for good reason, right? Like that that is something that will erode confidence in you if you continue to see evidence of that that institution being abused now i think yeah police are something god puts in place and they should be acting for justice and when they aren't i, I said this before but it's a it's a twofold it's a twofold sin in the sense of there's the actual act of attacking a protester but then there's also the undermining of the god-given authority that they've been given and that that gets received by the people around them that then think that that authority is uh, illegitimate, um, and and you're just seeing, and that's why I think you just continue to see violent, like conflict between protester and police, and and so for the Supreme Court and its legitimacy, yeah, you could certainly see this president saying something Jacksonian along the lines of like, well, enforce it yourself. Yeah. That seems very possible to me. Um, and so, you know, through that lens, I understand why John Roberts is so concerned about the legitimacy of the court and not wanting five, four decisions and things of that sort. Um, you've thrown him two bones now. 
which that was the bone I was going to throw. Like to be an institutionalist is not a bad thing. And John Roberts, our chief justice is nothing if not an institutionalist, I think. And I agree. I'll throw him that bone. I don't think it justifies inherently immoral decisions, right? Like that. And I think a point you made last week was process matters as much as outcome or see, I, yeah, I don't know if you submit that point, but you said process is important. Outcome is important. Yeah. It, the problem is, is if you have a good process that leads to a moral end, the process itself is also immoral. Um, and so I think that that but actually, I think that's where the conflict comes though. Thabiti, you made a point earlier about legitimacy and institutions and their erosion. One definition of like a, a well-functioning democracy, right, is it's a place where the side that loses wants to live to fight another day and accepts the legitimacy of a system in which they lose and will and has a reasonable belief that if they win the argument and persuade and do the work that they can build a majority for what they believe in over time right it's when you decide that that's not true anymore that you say i well i'm not in, i'm not even going to be in this system right i'm i'm not going to accept it anymore and so what it does mean is saying i accept the result of a decision by a court or a Congress or a president or an election, even if I don't like the outcome, that respect for process is important. It's probably critical to like legitimacy and continuity for a democratic society. So, well, so let me absolutely agree on that. Go ahead, Ben. Then I want to ask a question. Yeah. So, so let's get specific though. Like, like having a, a quote process that, um, protects the legitimacy of an institution but leads to an outcome like continuing abortion that that process like that the illegit you've the legitimacy of the court no longer matters because it's calling the it's calling evil good and good evil and so biblically i would say like it doesn't it doesn't matter like the process itself is corrupted by what it's supporting even if it is a neutral process. My th I, I, I take a different view on that. I'd love to hear it. Yeah, so when Romans 13 and 1 Peter basically say that God has instituted government, that's every government, um, all authority comes from God. Um, we tend to think of that as American Christians and sort of analog analogize it to sort of good government and good guy U.S. government. But that's true of every dictatorship and, and every, um, yeah, every, every savage government <laughs> in, in the history of man with all of its, its corrupt uh, proceedings. So from a Christian biblical perspective, the legitimacy of the government uh, is only partially rooted in the, the justice of its processes. Um, it is ultimately rooted in uh, the sovereign ordination of God. Now, um, the, the thing that troubles me about, and this is what was going to be my question, I guess I'll make it a comment in response to Nick's comment about um, yeah, people having to believe that even if they get a bad result, uh, they can abide by that result with the hope of changing it um, through participating in the institutions themselves. What troubles me right now is that the folks least likely to think that way seem to me to be, and you guys check me if you think differently, seem to me to be so many sort of self-described evangelical Christians. Right. So if I, if I compare the sort of animus toward government 
uh, of evangelical Christians right now to the response of African Americans in a long march toward enfranchisement. Um, we knew that there were corrupt processes and corrupt laws, and we protested them. Yet we sort of demonstrated the good faith of working primarily within those institutions to change the institutions, change the laws, change the outcomes. It worries me to see uh, majority Christians uh, seeming to take conspiratorial views of the country and its institutions and um, um, rebellious views, frankly, uh, toward government and institutions. Because they, I, I think they make this, this category mistake of saying, I didn't get the outcome I wanted, therefore the government is illegitimate, therefore we need to you know, blow it up. And now I'm being a little bit hyperbolical there, but, but not much. Um, and so I think it's important for Christians to recognize that the legitimacy of government is rooted most fundamentally in, in the sort of ordination, the sovereign ordination of God, not in the outcomes that we hope for, or even in the processes that the institutions use, Th so, though, they do, though, they, though they do impact legitimacy. So I think I would say, I would say two things. First on like, I can only, I can only speak for me and then the, the majority of Christians that I kind of know. I don't think it's more fun if you speak for everybody, Ben. <laughs> I, mean, I, I try not to follow those people on Twitter. Um, I think a re-shifting of strategy is not bad, right? Like if you if you like me, if someone like me kind of says, okay, this Supreme Court thing has kind of run its course, at least for now, right? Like given how we think, you know given the way November looks like it's shaping up, given the composition of the court um, and, you know, justices who may cycle on or off, like it looks like the Supreme court option is closed. I don't think it's, I don't think it's a bad, I don't think it's, there's anything wrong with saying, okay, let's focus on the private sector for the next 10 years. That's, mm -hmm. that's kind of like my, my position. And I think you can do that without saying the government is illegitimate. Um, you know, the Supreme court is like, totally corrupt and I'll never believe in it again. I think it's kind of just a strategic uh, pulling back and investing resources in something else. Now I, that's me personally. I don't, that, cause I, you know, uh, I think last week I said, all right, like this is over. And I think that's still true for now. I mean, we'll see. Uh, I could be surprised, but I think for the, the immediate future, uh, conservative evangelicals who want to see, you know, less abortion would be better suited to focus in other areas. Um, I, I I think that, go ahead, yeah. Yeah, so the other thing on the um, process, like the process being legitimate, I didn't, I didn't mean to say like, if you, a government reaches an evil end, that means, you know, let's take to the barricades. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we're not saying that. We yeah. all know you were not saying that. <laughs> <laughs> I do think it corrupts the process though, right? Like, you can't say the process is good and right and neutral because it protects legitimacy while supporting evil. Right. So it's like that, that's kind of my point is like, if we, if we find ourselves get, go ahead, Nick. I don't, I say, this is where I, I come down with the BD did, which is to say the long March, the BD is describing right on civil rights. It includes multiple compromises throughout the 19th century some slave states and some free states, right? Sure. It includes sort of ending slavery, but keeping segregation, 
It includes, you know, it, it includes any number of things where the activists of the time, I'm, I'm sure they might have, I'm sure they had their own views like that's a bad decision, but it didn't cause them to say, I think you're, I get what you're saying. To say something's illegitimate is not the same thing as to take up arms in rebellion. And most of these people did not do that. Right. right. But it is corrosive to say, I don't accept the result, right? Like that is, that actually does eventually lead to, right? Like, well, and these people are willing to- That depends yeah. on what you mean by I don't accept. Like, I don't accept the fact that in this country, killing babies is acceptable. Like, I don't, that doesn't, for me, that doesn't mean I'm, yeah, for anybody, I, I should hope it's not, I'm gonna take up arms and revolt against the government. Um, it's, it's rather, it becomes part of the moral stain that this country has. Right, and I think that that applies to um, the African right, African American march towards uh, some measure of equality as well. Right, like yes, we are fighting for justice along the way, and every incremental gain that we get is is yeah good. But that doesn't remove the immorality of what the government is doing. So I'm speaking in. So I should clarify. I'm speaking in like spiritual, judgmental terms of like this is this is wrong. And even if we arrived at this wrong conclusion by a right constitutional procedure, I'm still going to say that that's wrong. And I, yeah. I, I know you guys I mean, I, that. Wrong is, not, yeah, wrong is not the same thing as illegitimate, right? And actually I would argue, right? Like all the activism post Roe v. Wade was all working within the system. Now I think you're, you're, you're a little demoralized now because you're like, well, shoot. Like, but again, the civil rights movement faced multiple Supreme Court decisions that seemingly foreclosed, right? Like, and in the end, it took constitutional amendments and a whole bunch of other stuff. Like, I think it's it's viewing the arc of the moral universe as long, is like, and patience, yeah, and in the end of eternity, right? That I think is a big part of why we can participate uh, in and view our government as legitimate. Partly because Romans thirteen commands us to partly because we take a long view of like what it takes to, to march toward justice. Sure. And I think there's a different calculation over that. Like in 50 years, you know, any, anything is possible. Mm -hmm. um, in, in the immediate, in the short term, I think there's the current, that particular decision, the current context uh, would suggest a different strategy. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. So on that note, actually, let's ask ourselves sort of, you know, what as Christians should we do? Would we encourage in order to be prophetic? And I think prophetic in the sense of how we talk about our, our laws, how we talk about how they're interpreted and how we talk about the legitimacy of our laws and of the government that makes them. I'll let Ben start. Oh no, you did this to me last week. <laughs> Uh, all right, so how do we think about the illegitimacy or the legitimacy of our laws? <laughs> yeah, how should we be prophetic in approaching that set of questions? What should we as Christians do? Well, I, I think we should learn to read our Bibles well. Yeah. And we should learn to the sort of proper relationship between our Bibles and our Constitution. Uh, that is, our Bible is higher, right? And, uh, and even as our Bible calls us to a posture of submissiveness um, to ruling authorities, it doesn't call us to blind submissiveness. Um, and so we have to learn discernment. And um, by, by, by using discernment, uh, sharpen our ability to 
make good judgments ourselves about um, yeah, how to read the Constitution, which, which judicial philosophy to apply given the times we have to become sons and daughters of Issachar. Um, and then I think, again, it sort of carries over from last week. We, we do have to figure out ways to encourage our elected representatives um, to, to pick impartial judges and to, to sort of not play the political game that's being played with um, judges right now. That, that's, that's disastrous. That's part of what I think is contributing to the erosion of legitimacy. Every side is politicking. Uh, with regard to judges, rather than, you know, having a more, uh, I guess, uh, fundamental concern for righteousness uh, and and doing what's right. Um, again, to allude uh, to allude back to, uh, again, Thurgood Marshall. Uh, and then I think there's this I think there's this advocacy role that we have to play, right? Uh, particularly when uh, things sort of bear upon image bearers. Uh, in unjust ways, we've got to put Proverbs 31, 8, 9 into practice. We've got to speak up for the vulnerable. Uh, and so that's, that's obviously the case with um, abortion and children in the womb, but it's also the case for lots of other peoples and situations. And so I think as Christians, we've got to develop a more activist posture um, for righteousness uh, in the land and, uh, and to pray for that and act for that. Um, yeah, now that I've had two minutes to try and get through my... I was trying to serve you, Ben. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think having a good, under, a good understanding of justice as it's defined, like, biblically is really helpful and helps us think about these things. Um, a definition I like for justice is divinely righteous action, whether taken by humanity or by God that promotes equality among humanity. It's used in relation to uplifting the righteous and oppressed and debasing the unrighteous and oppressors. Um, I pulled that from a Bible dictionary. Um, but I just think as we, we talk about like justice so much and you look through the scriptures, you know, it's do not deny justice to a per poor person among you in his lawsuit. God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the resident alien. Um, it's defined positively in 2 Samuel 8.15 with David, like he's there to administer justice. First King, Solomon's there as king and as a part of a government to administer justice and lauded when he does it well. So when we look at judges, we want to say, are they distributing righteousness and justice as the scriptures would define it? And if the answer is is yeah, we're looking for judges that do that. Um, and so to Thabiti's point, we can advocate for that. I think that's true. I think there's Christians who are called to be that. We're called to pursue a legal profession and bring the biblical definition of justice that supersedes our constitution and then applies that through our laws as he, as he or she can in our courts. And I think uh, that is a, a calling that can really glorify God and be a force for uh, justice in this country. And in some ways that'll go largely unseen, but can be immensely powerful in people's lives. Um, yeah, I'll end there. Um, all I'll say to that is it's funny, this episode is about like the law and constitutions. And I think for me, I, the legitimacy thing started to overshadow it in my head and thinking about like, because like 
interpreting the law well is fundamentally about legitimacy. So my, I guess my advice I'd add on would be look for leaders who seek large majorities, who want mm. to build larger majorities by persuasion, like not just get everything over the line by 50% plus one, which is where most of our politics are in our kind of modern era. Um, I think you want someone who's going to try to go and make the argument to people that are different from them. Um, you know, it's funny, the two la most recent models I can think of of this, for, and, and not entirely, but in their own ways, were George W. Bush and Barack Obama. And they're each in their own way, tried to do outreach to the other side in ways we don't see, I think, today. Um, I think, think the building majorities persuading, and then I think this idea of accepting loss, to me, I think you're worried about as evangelicals, we need to get comfortable with the idea of just being on the losing side of elections, public policy battles, and just understanding that like with an eternal perspective, like that's okay, the Lord is sovereign. We can live to fight another day and we can hopefully make change. And it's actually a gift that we even live in a constitutional system where that's possible. Um, so I think that's something that I'll, I'll try to take away both whether I'm thinking about progressive issues or conservative issues that matter to me. Mm -hmm. So lots to think about um and uh thank you guys as always do you want to go ahead and pray us out yeah thank you brother for organizing and and thank you brothers for contributing you always always sharpen me let's pray father thank you so much for um the providence the kind providence of allowing us to live in this country in this time thank you for the stewardship that that providence uh, places in our hands you've given us certain rights and certain abilities um to to use in the advance of your righteousness. We pray you'd make us faithful to do that. We pray for those in authority over us. We pray for our judges and uh, we pray for the executive and the legislative branches. We thank you, Lord, for the constitution that has served us this far uh, with all of its imperfections. And we pray that you give us grace to make the country uh, a more perfect union. Uh, we ask, O oh Lord, that you would uh, show us favor and kindness uh, and particularly your church, that we might bear light and um, be salt and light uh, in this day and age, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah.